Hello, I'm David Kerr, Director of Communications with the Diocese of Lansing here in uh, Michigan, and welcome to this Diocese of Lansing podcast upon the 22nd of October, the feast day of Pope St. John Paul II. For those who don't know, Pope St. John Paul II was born 100 years ago in the uh, Polish, southern Polish town of Wadowice, uh, christened uh, Karol Josef Wojtyla. As a young man, he survived family tragedy, Nazi occupation, communist occupation, and emerged in 1978 uh, before a viewing public globally as Pope Saint, as Pope John Paul II, um, the uh, first non-Italian Pope in over 450 years. And he was a Holy Father from 1978 through till his death in 2005 and did many remarkable things in that uh, pontificate, which we'll come on to uh, discuss, and was uh, canonised by Pope Francis in 2014. So where better to discuss Pope St. John Paul II than here? This is Lansing Catholic High School, in case you're uh, guessing. This is the President's office, and I'm pleased to say I'm joined by the new President of Lansing Catholic High School, Mr. Dominic Ioko, and the new Principal of Lansing Catholic High School, uh, Kristen Schmerbeck. Mm-hmm. It's a surname I was trying to get right, but I've got <laughs> it right, so thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here upon this uh, feast day. And uh, tell me, John Paul II, what's his connection to this school? Well, I think it's an interesting connection, and I think it's a, in a way like a lot of people you know, identify that our patron saints usually pick us. It's, it's not the other way around. And I think throughout the history of this school, that's kind of been revealed. Of It wasn't really the school seeking out John Paul II. It really was him seeking out and saying, I, I have a special role here. Um, and it's been uh, throughout in little ways as we developed our, our cross logo to how our chapel was named. Uh, so he clearly has a plan for us here, and, and we're glad he's on our team. So. So at a corporate level, he's your patron saint, your chapel's dedicated to him. You have a beautiful statue to Pope St. John Paul II uh, in, in the chapel. We were just down in the mm-hmm. chapel earlier. Uh, at a personal level, though, both of you have John Paul II uh, connections. I know you, Kristen, joined the school recently mm-hmm. from Pope John Paul II Great High School in Virginia, and you, Dominic, were previously the provost or provost at uh, John Paul the Great University in California. So just tell us, Kristen, what, <laughs> what did, there's a lot, and, and also you're, you're, you were announced in post on the 100th anniversary of the birth of Pope St. John Paul II. Where, this is the epicenter <laughs> of all things Voitia. Uh, so yeah, what in your life, Kristen, what does John Paul II mean to you? Sure. Well, it's really fascinating how saints, again, I think Dominic had it exactly right, your patron saints pick you. I live during what would be considered the John Paul era. You know, I have friends and um, colleagues who have seen John Paul II in person or who were touched as babies by John Paul, John Paul the Great. And I was like, I don't think I actually knew he was alive until he was dead. Uh, I really don't think I fully became aware of John Paul II, his teachings, his greatness, and this sort of just natural pull that he has on you until I had entered the religious life. I was uh, I was in a community for a number of years, and John Paul was their patron saint, and so much of their constitutions and everything they did was based on his writings and his life. And it was even a missionary order. So we understood that, you know, we go out to where where Christ is in the missions. And then it just, he just followed me from there. I mean, it was, it was a pursuit 
from then on. And I went to a school that uh, taught at a very small school, taught Latin. Um, you know, Habemus Papam. You know, you just relive. I watched the um, 1978 speech again where he was elected last night. And there's this electricity about it. Um, but then it, I found that St. John Paul the Great High School where I was working previously, they had, I'd heard of their reputation. They also had Dominican sisters. So it's, there's a St. John Paul Dominic tag team in my life, which is really weird when Dominic and I were named on the same day. I was like, this, okay, St. John Paul, Dominic, this is crazy. Um, but there's this love, this way that he was brilliant. I'm a little bit of a nerdy academic. That's good for a school principal, yes. I guess. And yes, and so, um, <laughs> so he could speak all these languages, and there's all these stories about he could multitask. He'd like be writing a letter in one second, but listening to a, you know some sort of speech on the other, and he could talk about both things interchangeably simultaneously. But yet he was so real to the people, and so affectionate, and people felt seen by him. And I think there's this great need by our students and by pretty much everyone in the world today to feel seen and heard and loved. And there was something about Pope John Paul the Great where you felt that even if you were just looking at his picture. There's just something really miraculous about the way he was captured in his own words, in videos, throughout um, his time. So that pull just kept, it was a little thread that kept pulling along and his spirituality and the way that he wants to bring the church into the new millennium. Uh, the fact that, as you mentioned, he was the first non-Italian pope in 450 years. He traveled all over the world, the church in Africa, the church in South America. He went places popes had never gone before to, to remind us of the universality of our faith and how there's really this wonderful common humanity that unites us together. And I think it was the fulfillment of what, you know, Pope Paul VI, the other great papal saint, perhaps of the 20th century, started in Humanae Vitae about this necessity to reimagine and to recommit to the human dignity that we all share is the way to move forward amid all of the chaos and turmoil we face. And I think John Paul lived that in his papacy and it just called to me. Because yeah. obviously you use the term great in reference to Pope, Jim, Pope John do. Paul II. I own that, yes. And well, it's a high bar to reach. I mean, there are only three other popes in history mm -hmm. who are referred to as the great uh, Gregory, Leo and Nicholas and uh, obviously it's more of a, a, a popular um, suggestion that John Paul II is great. I mean why for you, so you worked at a John Paul the Great school and you were the provost at a John Paul the Great university. For you Dominic, why does John Paul deserve the title The Great? So I actually wrestled with this a lot at the university because it was a new university and you would get challenged on it. Like, this is just hubris, you know, like you shouldn't be saying this. So I kind of looked into it a fair bit to say, okay, is, is this something we shouldn't be doing? But as you look into it, one of the keys is the popular reference to somebody as the great. So that's actually one of the important trademarks of is somebody the great? Is Well, does it catch on in popular language? The other piece for me is simply the breadth of the impact he had on the world. So he wasn't, you know, he didn't just have an impact on the Catholic Church. He, he you know, is, even by secular historians is credited with helping to bring down communism. Like, I mean, his, his breadth of impact 
uh, on the world stage, I think, is again a testament to the fact that he truly was great. He, he had a huge impact across a lot of areas in a lot of ways. If we take his impact on the world, uh, okay, to break it down, church and world, if we take the impact on the world as being the fall of communism as being the most notable or one of the most notable impacts that he had on the events of the world, um, and for those who are old enough, says the 47-year-old, uh, you know, to wake up in that morning of 1989 and to see the Berlin Wall being 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 smashed with pickaxes and torn down when this seemed to have been a permanent fixture. You assumed it would have been a permanent fixture for the rest of your life. My goodness. Um, in terms of the church, what do you think is the marks out his greatness in terms of the reform of the church? I think there's a lot of things you could point to, but I, I think collectively, as, I, as I've been thinking about it, I think the hallmark that we'll see in the future is that, you know, he talked about the new springtime, and I think really he planted the seeds of the new springtime in many ways. Like, that, his approach to everything, his, his, his kind of calling card of be not afraid, like, it was relevant then. I think it's only become more relevant now, especially in, a, in COVID times. Um, I, so I think his lasting legacy, like between all of the you know encyclicals and speeches he gave that are profound and, and touch on so many areas and expanded the church's teaching, you know, from Catholic social teaching to theology of the body, I think all of those pieces collectively are really what the seeds of, of the eventual fullness of the new springtime in the church really became, whether it's how seminaries started to transform at a time when you know many of them were struggling to, to our understanding of the body and, and, and all those types of things. I think collectively that, that really was mostly the seeds of hopefully igniting this new springtime in the, in the church. Would you agree with that, Kristen? What would you add to that? I think I agree with it. Absolutely, I agree with it, that the new springtime is coming. I think the challenge is, as Dominic was saying that, I've been meditating a lot today on many of the images of John Paul. You always see him leaning on his crozier, right, with the mm -hmm. crucifix on it. I think that the new springtime, just as when, right, uh, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it bears, it bears no fruit. I think there's going to be challenge. There's going to be this need to recognize that there is a new springtime, and Christ is the king of the universe, and he is a king of love, ultimately. Um, but that is that love is a call to greater things. So when I was rereading Crossing the Threshold of Hope recently, to give this more context, because it sounds a little... Which is Pope John Paul II's book that he, he it's written in the first person, was issued as, it was a best-selling book. In it fact. was wonderful, yeah. and I had reread it recently, or just started to, and I didn't actually get past the first question, because what happened was, is that a journalist, they'd set up an interview, and he sent the questions in advance. Well, then the interview got canceled, most likely because the Pope had a hard time sometimes following his own schedule, um, and... Uh, so then he took the time to write and rewrite and then send answers in written form to the questions that the, the journalist had provided and was given permission then to put it into a book. And the first part he mentions is they ask, well, what does it mean that the Pope is the vicar of Christ? And he goes through this long exposition, but part of it that gets to me, and it was the gospel in our mass today here at school, is that, you know, he says, be not afraid open wide the doors to Christ. Well, what is it that we're not supposed to be afraid of? He said, we're not supposed to be afraid of who God calls us to be. And so it's, then it's the story of Peter being called. 
And so Peter is called and they, they're, Jesus is preaching, so he's hearing Jesus' word, and then Jesus tells him to go out and get the fish. He's like, well, Lord, we've been working all night. You all know the story. They get this enormous pull of fish so much that the boats are practically capsizing. What's Peter's response? His immediate response is, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. In the presence of true holiness, we recognize our own weakness. And Jesus' response is, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. So he says, I see you as you are, Peter, at this point, Simon, but I still have great plans for you. And the plans involve catching men. And I think what happens then is that, just like Mary said yes, we don't know where that path leads, but it often leads to something higher and more. He doesn't leave us there in our sinfulness. He calls us up. And I think when we're called up from where we are, where we're pulled out of our comfort zone, there's some, you know, there's chiseling that happens. And that can be painful and it can involve sacrifice. And that's scary, but ultimately extremely fruitful and in our best interest. Well, and I, I think, too, like, he's, he's, he was, gave us the perfect model of suffering. So I think, I think I'm with Kristen on, like, I, I, I fully believe there is a new springtime coming. I think there may be some significant suffering before that gets here. And he gave us the model of how, how to endure suffering, how to carry the cross. So, you know, I think, again, in, in those ways, like, that'll be his lasting legacy in many ways. Is, is he, he planted the seed, showed us how to suffer, and, and gave us the blueprint to move forward in many ways. That was almost a story that uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, would tell that on those occasions where he felt that he had served his time at the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, working as doctrinal watchdog alongside Pope John Paul II, each time that he was due to tender his resignation and return back to genteel living in the countryside of Bavaria, uh, writing books while his brother plays piano or whatever the plan was, um, that he looked at the suffering Pope, Pope John Paul II, and, and just couldn't leave him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, yeah, it was a great witness for all of us of a certain generation to observe. Uh, but I guess, you know, the John Paul II generation, which I guess is the ecclesial equivalent of kind of Gen X, isn't it? Those, those of a certain age, I think you're a bit younger, um, who were inspired by this uh, Pope who, uh, you know, was the Holy Father for, for the duration of much of our childhood and youth and, and a bit beyond still. If you remember, the, the Eucharistic prayer didn't change for years until the bishop's name changed and the Pope's name never changed. Um, but in terms of millennials in terms of Gen Y, I think we're now on to, the, 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 the children here, the students at Lansing Catholic High School, does Pope John Paul II mean anything to them? And if so, what, what does he mean to them? Go ahead. Sure. I think the reality is that there is this great love that John Paul the Great had for the youth, right? There's a book by Jason Everett on John Paul's Five Loves. And the youth is the first one he talks about. There's a universality in that where kids or students understand that their message was really for him. He knew that the future of the church was the young people. And that doesn't change whether he's alive now or, you know, obviously, you know, he died in 2005 or 15 years later. The message of that need for the young people in the church has not died. And I think it's because those of us who received that message have become living witnesses to it. Those of us particularly who invest in Catholic education understand that the youth are our future. And now more than ever, when our world is increasingly 
not formed or um, rooted in a Christian ideology, passing on this message of, no, there is a beautiful promise of hope for your future that God has planned for you from all eternity, and this is the way to do it. John Paul iconically spoke to every young person of every generation for over, what, 15, 20 years. Those messages have not died down, and I think as long as we continue to proclaim them and show our lived experience of him, um, I think he can be ever-present to them. Even this morning, we had a special Mass in our chapel, and I was shocked by the number of students that came in at 7.30 on a day when classes start at 8.55. Simply to go to Mass and to pray in front of a relic of um, St. John Paul II that was lent to us by the bishop, I believe. I believe it's the bishop's relic that we used this morning. But the students, um, Father Paul, since we couldn't you know, venerate it as we normally would since of the pandemic, um, everybody had the opportunity to pray in front of it for a few seconds. And to see these students who had gotten up extra early to receive the sacrament of Holy Mass, to stop and pray in front of this relic, there's something that calls to them. And it's John Paul's voice ringing through the ages. His message is that clear. I, th I think it's it's incumbent upon the Gen X version of that generation, right, that uh, we continue that message, right? So uh, if, if we don't do our job, I think, sure, young people will never hear of John Paul the Great. But what I've seen is, is in the generation that was growing up, the people that attended those World Youth Days, they are the most on-fire Catholics I've encountered. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but, but now they're the ones that can transmit that message. And so I think they help make John Paul and his teachings relevant to the youth of today, primarily by their witness, but then also sharing their experience and, 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 and understanding of John Paul with them. So I think that's, that's where his legacy really starts to take hold in the younger generations. And I guess one way in very specific terms which uh, John Paul II's legacy uh, persists in not just this Catholic school, but all Catholic schools across the Diocese of Lansing. is this rolling out of the theology of the body, those collection of Wednesday audiences from early on in Pope John Paul II's papacy, where he outlined um, the, uh, a coherent recapitulation of the Christian understanding of the, the dignity of the human person, the truth of human sexuality, which he had taught as... Um, uh, a young priest and as Archbishop of Krakow in southern Poland and all of a sudden this was on a, a global stage and I know that in uh, recent weeks the diocese has started rolling this out in in schools as well. Just tell us a bit about that. So I mean I think it, it's critical and again I think he planted seeds at a time you know that have just become more and more important uh, as the new issues that we deal with every day have encountered. Because for me, and maybe it wasn't the experience of everybody, but for me, you know, a lot of growing up in, in a Catholic environment, it really was the, you do this, you don't do that, end of discussion, no understanding why. But the beauty of, of his teaching is it filled out the why. Right. Like, I mean, I mean, if you understand and it all goes back to the, the dignity of the human person. And if, if you understand that across the board, everything the church has been saying and teaching 
makes a whole lot more sense and understanding of like this is the fullness of, of, of the person so um, again I think it's it's a lot about planting the initial seeds that we need for our times and that understanding of here's why we believe these things and teach these things. I also hope that what comes from it is a sense of a common language as all of our schools across the diocese continue to meet and face the issues of our day that are increasingly relevant to what the theology of the body promotes. So in the sense of understanding the purpose of human sexuality and how it fits into God's plan for holiness and for a full life, we provide not first to our educators. So this year's um, initiative is to give all of our teachers and um, those faculty, uh, those staff that can attend this common understanding of, well, really, what is this theology of the body about and what is the language and where is it giving that common understanding across the diocese because it's an exceptionally complex teaching. If you look at if you look at the love and responsibility book that came from those catechetical sessions, some people feel you may actually need a master's or PhD in theology to fully understand what John Paul was saying only because he was working at such a high academic level. Thankfully, we've had great um, evangelists sort of take on that work and make it a little bit more digestible for us mere mortals. Um, and I think the reality is, is that by empowering and giving these tools to our educators throughout the diocese, we're going to have um, just this common language and understanding that can help us address these really challenging issues that our students and our families are facing on a daily basis in a culture that um, uses sexuality is sort of the determining factor of your identity rather as part of the fabric of who you are as a person because our primary identity first is as a child of God and that's a message that is lost in our culture right now um, and and it's really it, it's it's a great challenge and it's a source of a lot of turmoil in our families in our students and so getting that basic understanding that we can all share is, is the first and most important starting point. We're grateful that we have that initiative going on this year and moving into next year. Yep. And in terms of a case study um, of the impact of John Paul II on a youthful life, I know, Dominic, you referenced your, uh, your upbringing there. It was in, this is a kind of slightly counterintuitive um, reality, but you have a, not so much a conversion story as a reversion story related to not meeting Pope John Paul II. <laughs> True, true, yeah. Uh, uh, so I, I grew up, went to Catholic elementary school, but like many Catholics, you know, in the high school and college years, kind of was nominally Catholic at best. Didn't didn't really understand my faith and, and would go to Mass occasionally. Um, and it, it was either the Christmas Day, 95, could have been 96, one of those, uh, when I was in college, my family had arranged to go to Rome for a week, and we went Christmas Day and back New Year's Day, because that was the cheapest way to do it. And so being a college kid in Rome, you know, I'm uh, pretty excited to be in Europe. And uh, with all, the event that my family had arranged was, well, if we show up here at this time, we might catch the Pope's motorcade passing by. I'm like sitting around for three hours to maybe see the car drive by. That seems crazy to me. You know, such a waste of time. Uh, 
But I, I think that's probably part of the reason that John Paul is like, hmm, I'm going to show you, you know, because <laughs> now as, as a Catholic, it's like, what, you know, what a missed opportunity and a deep regret of mine. And, and uh, like Kristen, I've met so many people that have, have personally met him and had conversations with him as well. And it's just, you know, what did I miss? And I think that's one of the reasons he's like, okay, I got a better plan for you. Uh, but it was on that trip where we had arranged a tour of the Vatican with a, a priest that was stationed there. And it was his enthusiasm for the faith and his explanation of everything amazing at St. Peter's um, that really planted my initial seeds of, and the, the idea was pretty simple that I walked away with. It's like, this is real. It was, it was kind of the first time that I really felt like, like I always believed God existed and all that stuff, but it was the first time like, wow, the Catholic faith is, is truly real. And it, it was the combination of that and the beauty of, every church in Rome that you walk into. But it was his passion that I think I attribute to the culture that John Paul had created there that really led me to start down that journey of, of my reversion and, and understanding and then fully embracing my Catholic faith. And Papa, look at you now. Yeah. <laughs> so again, we'll bring this into land because I know you've got a busy feast day schedule here. Schedule, schedule. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you say Either potato, one. I say potato. Um, uh, here at Lansing Catholic. So I guess in, in terms of a kind of State of the Union address from the two of you, uh, you know, in what way, you're the new team in charge of Lansing Catholic High School. Lansing Catholic High School is one of only four regional high schools we have in the Diocese of Lansing, all of them very wonderful. Um, I'm paid to say that, um, but it's also true. <laughs> uh, but in terms of making this school even more wonderful, what is, uh, what's your manifesto for the, the future of this school uh, and in what way does the, your patron saint, John Paul the Great, play a part in shaping that uh, vision and making it happen? Well, I think the most important piece is, is uh, um, that John Paul was a great witness. And, and our, our mission is to form students into disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and we've had several conversations on this already. That can only happen if we're disciples. Right. So uh, and I think he's the model. So he did, he did all these amazing things. And when I was at John Paul the Great University, you know, one of the things I was enamored with is like, I want to change the world. I want to make it better because, you know, I've just had this reversion and I'm on fire. Let's go. And he looked at John Paul and he did it like, I mean, he, he changed the world. And so then you try to figure out how and it's like how because he was connected to Christ, especially in the Eucharist and to our mother Mary. And, and it was his faithful listening that led him to do all the amazing things uh, uh, and his witness of his life that, that did that. And, and there's a few concrete ways that I, I think of, of how he approached youth that I think we need to embrace. One, you know, we talk about his impact on the, on the youth and all the World Youth Days. But if you look at what he said at World Youth Days, he was very challenging. He did not back down from the youth. He didn't say, hey, you're great as you are. You know, everything's going to be fine. He challenged them. I mean, and one, he says, you know, woe to you if you do not preach the gospel of life. That's a pretty big challenge for, you know, teenagers and young adults at World Youth Day. And I think we've lost that many times in our culture of 
students will rise to the to the challenge we give them. So I think, you know, it's it's being a true witness across our faculty and staff, uh, challenging our students, and, and really being present to them. You know, the the great conversion stories he has of Swiss guards, where it's just he cared about their family, and and that eventually led to the the reversion of or conversion of people. You know, because it's it's that act of love. And I often reflect, reflect on that, thinking, oh, I'm so busy. You know, I have if the Pope could have time to make sure he stopped for adoration, make sure he checked in on how the Swiss Guard's family was doing. It's a good lesson that we all need to, to embrace and, and make sure that we're present for one another. So. so I love that you left you know, the easy question until the end, David, exactly. and <laughs> that I had to go after Dominic, who stole part of my answer, so I'm going to go back to Dominic. <laughs> well, no, I think Dominic's reversion story of where he talked with this priest who had been so imbued by the, the culture that the Pope had created, that that's what started the spark. In the hallways of Lansing Catholic, it would be wonderful if all of a sudden we had instead of you know, the 15 to 20 students that came, up, came this morning to Mass, you know, 40, 50, 75, absolutely, I want that. However, that's not mine to say, that's God's. And so what I really hope we can do is become, create the culture that we can have every person in this building who touches the life of a child be like that priest and how that priest affected Dominic and set him on the path for the great things that God had planned for him. So in order to do that, I think Dominic already mentioned, but we have to create a culture here where we all do live as witnesses. And the first step of that is to support all of our faculty and staff and our parents and families who are already living examples of this great faith that we've been given um, and capitalize that and help that grow. And part of that is um, not being afraid right? The fear is in so many ways the one constant that we can now see will be walking with us into the future. Uh, what are the great lessons of the last six months is we are so not in control. However, with God all things are possible. And so again, making it so that we make that time for adoration, but that as a staff we make that time. We provide that opportunity for our teachers to be in front of the Blessed Sacrament, to take that break and encourage them to do some, because you cannot give what you do not have. If you do not have a love for Christ that enlightens your entire being, you cannot give love for Christ to anyone else. And the purpose of a Catholic education is, yes, certainly want, we want our students to reach their best intellectual goals, but our desire to form students into the disciples of Jesus Christ isn't just about A's or B's. It's about intellectual, spiritual, and social. Because the other reality we've seen is that we can't go this alone. The isolation of the pandemic has caused great rifts and great pain. And while we're not through the woods yet and we have to maintain our social distance and follow the protocols, we're meant for communion. And so we have to build teamwork here, and we have to build a teamwork that's rooted in Christ. One of the first homilies that Father Paul gave that I was in the chapel for was he talked about having our hearts rooted in Christ. And that has stuck with me ever since. We have to have a faculty rooted in Christ if we want to have 
if we want to have children who are rooted in Christ and can carry that love into the future generations of the church. Well, I think that buzzer probably means uh, time up. <laughs> so, just two more things. What's on the agenda for today in terms of celebrating this great feast day? I hear rumour of cream puffs. That is not a rumour, that is a fact. Very true. In what way? That um, our amazing campus minister gave a recipe to our outstanding food service professionals, and they have recreated uh, John Paul II's favourite dessert, which is a Polish cream puff pastry creation that I'm sure will be... We have a pretty outstanding food service staff here, and their cookies are diocesan renowned, I think. Yes. And so I'm sure that the cream puffs will be equally delicious. That's a real feast day. And final thing, um, uh, Dominic, if you could just lead us in a prayer upon the feast of Pope St. John Paul II, the patron of, of your school. Sure. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather to remind us that we are your children first and foremost. Through the excellent example and witness of John Paul the Great, we ask for your blessings to come down upon our school and our diocese to watch over us, to protect us, and to guide us as we move forward and follow your path. And in all things we ask in Jesus' name and for the intercession of our Blessed Mother and John Paul the Great. Amen. 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 Dominic, thank you. Kristen, thank you. Good luck and God bless in all you do here at uh, the school. Uh, I know it's uh, early days for your administration and God willing, great things lie uh, ahead. Uh, and thank you for joining us uh, too for this Diocese of Lansing uh, podcast upon this great uh, feast day. Uh, may God bless you and may he keep you. Be not afraid.